Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for July has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is John Roderick. Uh, he's well known for Roderick on the line with Merlin Mann, in addition to an illustrious career in music, uh, currently playing with The Long Winters. Uh, how's it going, John? Great. How are you? I am. I'm excited. This is this is fun for me because, well, I'm, I'm I haven't followed all the bands you've been in. Mm. Roderick on the Line has been one of the most entertaining podcasts I've listened to. Oh, that's great. Thank you for saying so. Yeah, you and Merlin make a good uh, conversational team. Merlin is the entertaining part of the equation, <laughs> and then uh, I, I, you know, I'm kind of the spackle that holds those bricks together. I'll, I'll take it. I would give you a more flattering review, but well, but I'll it's take very, it. it's very, very colorful spackle. <laughs> I would a, say it's a stucco. The, I would say the building that Merlin and I have erected is half spackle. Would you yeah. say like a Southwest, uh, like stucco kind of home? You know, I've never been a fan of that style of architecture. The uh, the stucco muck. You know, uh, yeah, in no. the Pacific Northwest, they, they, they that was a that was a fad, right? They they built neighborhoods in this kind of southwestern style and it 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 rubs the rubs me the wrong way i live in a neighborhood with very um it was like 70s like ranch style homes Mm -hmm. most Mm -hmm. most of them are like white or or weird greens Mm -hmm. guess what i live in Mm, tell me it's a a wait a minute it's a mock (laughs) tutor it's a southwest style pink pink and yellow specs uh stucco home Uh, uh, it was that way when i got it yeah, yeah, I know the feeling. It's, uh, there are there are a lot of mock Tudor homes in Seattle too, and I also I, I, even though I don't I don't hate that style, I find them repulsive because Seattle did not have a Tudor period. Um, <laughs> Seattle was people the, the 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 local inhabitants here were living in longhouses at the time. What's a longhouse? Uh, a longhouse is a Pacific Northwestern style of uh, Native American dwelling, which is just as the name suggests, a long house, where um, everybody gathers to shelter from the rain and have potlatches and smoke salmon. Is a potlatch like a potluck in the Midwest? A potlatch is an interesting um, tradition of the sort of coastal Indians here, where you would have a huge party. And the goal of the party was to give away as much stuff as you could. Ah. So the party, your, your status and the party's success were rated on how much of your stuff you gave away, how, how generous you were. Are there demerits for being the recipient of things? No, I think, I think it's great. I think you, you, you treasure all the stuff that you get, but then the expectation is eventually you will have a podlatch and have to give it all away or... Or, or desire to give it all away. Interesting. I was considering. So a, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just. It's a. It's it's one of the. It's one of the local kind of uh, cultures, cu- cultural events that we didn't exactly co-opt into our <laughs> uh, into our white man's world here. I see. 
I was considering a um, an exercise bike uh, stair stepper uh, training program in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. where we could get together and have a similar event and just give away that like that solo flex you bought last year and never used. Uh huh. Just because the sheer number of exercise equipment sitting on driveways right now in my neighborhood, it's mm-hmm. there's something on every driveway, and we could all literally just trade. And feel good about ourselves for that week that we got a new piece of exercise equipment. And this, then, this is starting to sound like a coffee table book to me. If you <laughs> just drove drove around all the neighborhoods in your in your town and just took photographs of all the the little abandoned exercise equipment in people's front yards, just call it regret. Oh, uh, regret and with a nice font. And of course, it would have a nice font. My God. <laughs> What are you, some kind of animal? I was reading uh, last night. I was going through a box of my uh, of files that my dad left behind. I have multiple, multiple boxes of files that my dad left behind, and I've been going through them gradually over the course of seven or eight years. I was going through this box of files, and true to his form, it's you know a lot of like files of just phone bills and medical records, and then and then you'll find some amazing thing in there i found i found my sixth grade class photograph like tucked into some some uh manila envelope but i also found a folder uh full of psychiatric evaluations of me oh wow as a kid that they i i'd kind of forgotten that they did this they they were trying to trying to discern what was wrong with me why i wasn't thriving why i wasn't producing uh, like they expected, and so you know, multiple times, handful of times from the from age ten to age twenty, I was subjected to this battery of of tests, first from psychologists and then from psychiatrists. And one of the things, I, I, I guess, I, of course, I'd never read these things before, but one of the things that stood out and that had never been, um, no one had ever suggested it to me. But a common result was that the thing I scored the lowest on in the testing was recognition of fonts <laughs> and like a, the, a, the kind of hand-eye coordination required to do like pegboard peg, peg style activities and. Sure. And and I guess I guess recognition of graphical um, abstractions. So you're 12 I, years old, and they're asking you if this is Helvetica or not. Well, I'm not exactly sure what. I'm not exactly. I don't recall the tests, but but it, but it it caused me to reflect on the fact that ever since at some point 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I became aware of the hipster graphic art font fixation, like fonts really blew up about 20 years ago and became a a place where I guess art was happening. People were making very artistic fonts and they were very excited about fonts. People would yell at me about fonts. Comic Sans, Comic Sans, font talk. There was like (laughs) legitimately font talk in bars. And I could not have been less connected to uh, 
to what people were on about. It did not. I, I when somebody would hold up a thing and say like, "Here is a bad font," I would look at it and I, every once in a while I would see what they were talking about. Like, "Oh right, that's a that's a bad font." But <laughs> but then they would hold up a font and be like, "This is an amazing font," and I would say, "That is an unreadable font. I can't." Like the the primary purpose of it, if it is to convey information by arranging letters into words, it is a bad font by my estimation because it's because it cannot be read. And people would shake their heads and scowl at me and say, "You are a dumb person. You don't know what a you do not you do not understand fonts." I would love to see a side by side list of what you consider good and bad fonts. I feel yes. like we may agree on a lot of those. I, I would be very interested. I think that that is a fantastic test, right? Like, like here here are 100 fonts. Separate them into good and bad yeah, piles, just completely and, subjectively, and then just see what see what it what it produces and what kind of like standard deviation you could uh, you could start to see like what where the bell curve is on like everybody agrees that that. Uh, Helvetica is a great font, or Times New Roman. I don't know. You could even take the results and create like clinical studies that determine your personality based on font preference. See, I think that that is. I think that's absolutely true. I think that we should probably start putting people into camps based on the fonts that they prefer. Right. You oh, got- I I hear a jet. Is that Obama flying over? Obama is coming to Seattle today, and I he's going to fly over my house here. And I always like to poke my nose out and. And wave when Air Force One <laughs> flies right over my head. I think you were talking once about a jet and a bathtub and a washing machine mm-hmm. and like the music of the universe. Mm. I think that probably fits into psychological profiles as well. Just the ability to tune into that. Yeah, that, that there's. I mean, I think if if they if in this battery of of uh, psychiatric tests they had a. Um, here, here's the music of the spheres. <laughs> uh, question: I would, I'd, I'd score off the charts. Nice. All right. Speaking of music, you do a lot. You, when did you start? Uh, what would you consider your career in music? Um, you know, my uh, both of my parents and my sister, uh, I guess all three of those people are music appreciators. They, you know, my dad listened to music in the car. He listened to music in the house. He had his favorite artists and was a, was just a, a super fan of music. And my sister is the same. Music is a constant companion for her. My mom, uh, maybe a little bit less so, but still a, a big fan of music. The radio is on, the, she has albums. She has. A, I mean, my mom is eighty years old, and she has an iPod and and manages her iTunes um, like a teenager. You know, she is constantly putting records into her iTunes and and taking stuff out she doesn't like. And really, really, um, they all are music consumers, and I mean that not in an economic sense, although it it's true that the. It's also true that it's economic, but they want music going and they, and they love it. And I was kind of made of different stuff and didn't, 
I had records and I had a record player in my room and I would put on records and listen to them. But I found from a pretty young age that if I put a record on, I kind of wanted to turn the lights out and sit staring at the speakers. I did not have a very easy time putting a record on and doing anything else. I didn't, I didn't want to put a, put a record on and clean my room. I didn't want to put a record on and do the dishes. I didn't, it was hard for me to have music playing and perform any other task except staring at the speakers. So if your parents and siblings were appreciators, what would you call that? Well, I don't know. I've spent my, um, I've spent my whole life kind of in, um, you know, it's, it's like a, it's the old thing of, I don't know if what I call the color green is the same as what you call the color green. Um, I, I, I live, I inhabit this reality. So I don't, I don't know how to describe it really in ways that other people would, in, in ways that would, uh, that would put me into a class of people. You know what I mean? Like the music appreciators are, um, Music appreciators set the tone for how we appreciate music. So it, it, because they are the dominant culture, um, there's a kind of understanding of like how somebody who loves music goes about loving music. They go buy music and they listen to music every chance they get or whatever. And for me, my attention is constructed in such a way that I have a, very difficult and it's not that i can't multitask i multitask all the time but when music is playing it focuses my entire attention and i kind of can't imagine how you could listen to music you love and do something else Uh, particularly like listen to music that you love and talk to somebody at the same time or listen to music that you love and work out in the gym or watch tv or even walk around the neighborhood. I don't, I don't, I'm not able to do it because what ends up happening is if I'm interested in what I'm seeing, if I'm walking around my neighborhood and I'm, and I'm engaged, I want to hear the birds. I want to see, I want to be thinking about what I'm seeing. And if the music's playing, like my eyes kind of go dark, you know, I don't want to be watching the neighborhood go by. I want to kind of close my eyes and go into the music. So anyway, that makes it very difficult to be a casual music consumer who listens to 20 records a day or something because, because in a way it kind of paralyzes me. Um, especially if it's something that I'm, I'm really engaged in. And, and I can have the radio on and be listening to classic rock while I drive around town because it's classic rock and it just is a, I mean, you know every note of it and... It becomes it, background. Yeah, it has, it has taken on a, a familiarity that doesn't require, although it happens that I'll be, <laughs> I'll be driving along and Bad Moon Rising will come on and I'll just be like, oh, I've never really listened to Bad Moon Rising. What have I been doing? My life is a lie. And... You know, and I'll have to pull over and sit and listen to Bad Moon Rising with new ears. I did that just last night, just to make you feel better. Was I, it Bad Moon Rising? I, I'm I'm ashamed to admit what it was. Come on, it, it was Crazy Train. 
See? It's an amazing song. It is. And and the guitar solo, the second guitar solo, like the one where he does he bends the neck and does the arpeggios like all the way up the neck. Like I had to I had to pull over because I I want to hear it, not have it just be there. And yeah, I'm not really. like that with everything. I, I I consume a lot of music in a day. But there uh, are songs I will pull over for. Yeah, Randy Rhodes penetrated the 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 bubble. And I you know, I think everybody is capable of that kind of attention to music. The difference between me and other people isn't that I have that uh capacity because I think everybody can do that. The difference is that I don't have whatever filter it is that other people are able to bring down. Sure. That allows them to to sometimes not do that. You know what I mean? Sure. Like that. I, I I don't have whatever that screen is. So as soon as music is on, I'm just like, I I, I it just pulls me away. So anyway, <clears throat> as a as a kid, I was overwhelmed by music as often as I was um, really drawn into it, and I preferred to. I preferred to have quiet, uh, and that persisted till now. I mean, I prefer to I prefer it to be quiet unless I'm going to sit down and study a piece of music or or fully go into it. And and in in a typical week, it's it's difficult for me to budget a lot of hours to just sit um, eyes closed, headphones on listening to albums. I, I mean, I do it, but, but it isn't, <clears throat> I don't have that thing where I, where I listen to every new release. Um, <clears throat> and, and as a consequence, when I got into, when I got into high school, I was discovering music in a way, kind of in real time. Like I discovered the Beatles in, uh, in about 1980 and for whatever reason, the, the, music, the, the Beatles music that appealed to me the most was the earliest Beatles music. And so I started listening to, you know, 1963 Beatles in about 1980. And I worked my way through the Beatles catalog and through the British invasion, kind of gradually in, in a slightly accelerated, but almost in real time, like in 1.5 time. Um, so in 82, I was up to 65 or 60, you know, 66 and sort of worked my way, uh, uh, not, not because I had a strategy, but just because I was pursuing my own taste. Sure. And as the, you know, as the music got, as their music evolved and I started to be ready to hear the next thing, I would listen to the, you know, I'd say, what is, are there other Beatles records? Oh, look at this rubber soul. This looks weird. And I'd get it and I'd listen to it. So I was a little bit behind my peers who by 1982 were fully into Iron Maiden. (laughs) Uh, And I was hearing that music at people's houses and I went to see Dio with Dokken in about 83, I guess. You know, I was trying to participate in in the heavy metal culture that dominated in Anchorage. And then I started to, you know, started to go to punk rock shows, sort of almost following my sister more than, than 
um, than following my own nose. But in my in my own kind of what, what in my private lexicon, I was listening to the music of the '60s and then into the '70s, kind of in this in this structured way that was that was um, that was personal. And it was it wasn't. It sounds a little Aspergery, but I really feel like it was just that I was discovering it as I was discovering it in this in this way, kind of like it happened. Uh, just 15 years later. It just sounds like you're moving at your own pace. Like yeah. you, uh, you were taking the time to appreciate it and not voraciously absorbing it, but really just kind of following the natural progression of a band. And because I wasn't a voracious consumer, my sister worked at a record store. Oh, nice. And, and she had absolutely every single... Uh, scritty politty 12 inch and um, she was you know she would come home from her shift having basically spent all of the money she made on weird European new wave releases and I would hear that music come through her wall and I was, I was somewhat interested in it somewhat intrigued but not not enough to like dive into it sure um and because you know records were scarce, right? I didn't have access to the entire catalog of of Western music. I, if I wanted to, if I wanted a record, I needed to come up with ten dollars and go get it for myself. So, starting in about tenth tenth or eleventh grade, I looked around and all of my friends were playing guitar, and all of them were part of um, this aspiring heavy metal culture of of um, 80s teens who all could play at least the at least most of the guitar parts of crazy train yep and uh except for those the bridges yeah i know it was very <laughs> very i mean some some of these guys were were in, had an incredible dexterity and and um everybody had a kramer or a jackson they all wanted uh pv amps and it was you know, it was a hot time. And I kind of was a little bit outside of that music culture already. I didn't really, I mean, I liked that music, but I, I, but I, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't crave it. But this was kind of the social, this was one of the social loci of, uh, of teens in the 80s. And so my friends were all getting together and jamming and I, I was intrigued. I, I was very interested in watching the guitar get played. So I would go and kind of sit and just be one of the one of the guys who were sitting around listening to these friends of mine play guitar. And gradually, it was revealed that no, none of them wanted to sing. Nobody was brave enough to sing. And yet, without a singer... It was just piles and piles of noodling, right? Which some and, some guitarists managed to make a career out of. A very few, yes. and uh, and guitarists that I do not, and those are the ones; those are the metal dudes that I am least interested in. I'm totally the, with you. <laughs> the Ingves, <laughs> but uh, so I started to sing, and in a lot of cases, I did. They would be playing; they'd be playing 
um, something off of British steel. And I wouldn't immediately recognize the riff. And so I would just start singing my own words over the top. Uh, they would be, they'd play ACDC and I would be like, that's a cool song. And I would start singing my own words. And everybody thought that was hilarious, but also they thought it was great because here, here their sort of mimicry of playing this ACDC song was producing something new because, because this was, this was a version of it. No one had heard before. And my lyrics were terrible. And, and, uh, I was a teenager and a dummy, but I found a way into rock and roll because I was willing to, because it was, in, I was a little bit incredulous that everybody wasn't singing because the music is happening and it's, and you know, my instinct was to start humming first and then start trying to put words together and, uh, and sing over it. And so then I was in demand. I was, I was re- recruited, as the singer, and and I wanted to be, I wanted to be the singer because he was the center of the right. of the operation. Yeah, Did and from from there, you know, I was off to the races. I had a place in the in the band. Were you shy? Like, did you feel self conscious on stage, or did that come naturally? I wasn't shy. I I uh, I am one of those people who is um, by nature an introvert. Sure. But but I'm a but I'm a highly extroverted introvert, in, <laughs> in the sense that um, my method of coping with being introverted is to project a really energetic social um, front personality, and what that has enabled me to do my whole life is then have you know then have my alone time also be just as intense but when i'm out in the world i just turn it all the way on because why the i mean because otherwise you know people are coming at you and if you if you're going at them then uh it it clears a little path for you so i wasn't i wasn't shy i was already kind of a class clown and somebody that was um comfortable kind of being being in the center of trouble and what is more in the center of trouble than being the singer in a band. Right on. I, I, I'll have, I'll interject that I did the same thing. I'm extremely introverted, mm-hmm. but I was the lead singer of a punk rock band in high school. Yeah. And I found that actually I was pretty comfortable. Not, I didn't love having like set pop bottles and, and beer cans thrown at me. And during performances, I would get nervous. Uh, sure. I, but if everything went well, I, I was pretty comfortable being the crazy, screaming center guy. Did people spit on you? Oh, yeah. This was, yeah, this was during the era when it was like the first comeback of punk rock in pop culture. I remember. And everyone really wanted it to be like the days of the Pistols and the Clash. And so they were mimicking. They weren't spitting out of their own punk rockitude. They're spitting because they saw it on footage from a Sex Pistols show. Right. So, anyway. So, double gross. Gross and then also dumb. Yes. Well, I think that that, I think that the, you know, it's, it's very easy to look at a punk rock singer in the front of a band and say, oh, you know what? He's actually an introvert, but this performance is a kind of costume that 
enables him to, you know, be outside of himself and, you know, and, and, and so his, because it's so clearly a performance. Sure. But I have used that same technique my whole life. And, uh, and so the line between like, what is a performance and what is my real self is, is very blurry. And if, if, if you were to get inside my head with me, which is already a very crowded place, I think you would find that every time I'm in public, every time I am out, every time I'm not in a completely solitary state, I am in kind of a state of performance. And that is, uh, you know, that's been very comfortable for me over the years. And, and, and it's, it, it is variously disconcerting to people when they realize that this person that they think they know, the person that I am all the time, really, as far as anybody knows, is not, not only not uh, the whole picture, but is like not really who I consider myself. And that's, uh, that's just, you know, that's the introvert's song. Yep, I can relate. Yeah, and every introvert has a different version of it and... And, and, um, but it, it seems very natural to me that if you are, if you're gonna go outside the door and start meeting people, that you would put on some kind of cloak. And I have a lot of them. I have a big, I have a big cloak rack. Nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I, so I started playing music and then I realized over time that when I, when I discovered that all these bands I was in were actually just playing ACDC riffs. Uh, I realized that I was going to need to learn to play guitar if I wanted, to, <laughs> if if I didn't want to be playing, uh, writing songs over somebody else's ripped off riffs. Did you did you at the time realize that ACDC riffs are really just Muddy Waters riffs, louder and faster? No, it took me a long time to to <laughs> to put it all together, and and I, and I was a I was part of that generation of musicians who, I guess, like every generation in a way. Um, well, no, I guess that's not true. I mean, the Rolling Stones very consciously were ripping off Muddy Waters and the and ACDC was very consciously ripping off the Rolling Stones. I I was part of a maybe a post-punk consciousness that believed that we were going to not rip off anybody. We were going to completely reinvent music every time we picked up the instrument. Gee, something completely original with 12 semitones. Yeah, completely original <laughs> through uh, you know, through a combination of different time signatures and through a kind of early uh, pastiche, an early kind of maybe um, like quilting of different styles. Sure. Where at least in the late eighties, it didn't seem like there, there, there wasn't a, a music style that, that included all styles. And that was, that was one of the driving impulses of my early songwriting was just like, there are, there are no genres. And that was at a time when there were very definitely was hard you, genres. Was your band called Fish? It was not. Okay. It was pre-Fish even. <laughs> but, you know, Fish is like, uh, the, the thing that, that holds Fish together is that clean, weird, snaky guitar sound. Oh, I thought it was patchouli. Well, honestly, I've only ever seen them once, and it was a bottom. <laughs> okay, and it, 
it was a Bonnaroo at four o'clock in the morning. I didn't understand what I was seeing. <laughs> but they, 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 they seemed, you know, the power that those guys had the one time I saw them that was undeniable was that they were clearly improvising and they would make these hard turns in the music where suddenly somebody would change the variation and everybody would follow them instantly on a dime. And I watched them, I mean, they played forever and I watched them for what seemed like an eternity and I could not, I could not see how they were signaling one another or how they knew what to do next. They, they were, you know, they were really a, um, an organism in that way. It was impressive. I, w- I would give them that credit, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to throw in a sponsor and then let you finish this story. Oh, okay. Um, this episode with John Roderick has been brought to you by Shopify, a hosted e-commerce solution that allows you to set up and run your own online store in minutes. You can pick a template and add your products, and then you just pick a payment processor from PayPal to Stripe and Authorize.net, and then you ship your stuff, and it's all just a few clicks. With Shopify, it's easy to sell online. There's no software to download, host, upgrade, or maintain, and you can pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates, or you can create your own with full control over the HTML and the CSS. There are no bandwidth limits and no need to worry about scaling when your store becomes popular. And every Shopify store is level one PCI DSS compliant and totally secure. Also, Shopify has just announced their Shopify point of sale system. Um, it's an iPad application that lets you sell your Shopify store's products in a re- physical retail setting. It's quick and easy. You just browse the catalog, pick a customer's product, swipe their credit card, and then you can print their receipt or send it through email. Uh, you can automatically sync products and orders with your online stores, so there's only one dashboard to maintain all of your retail and online outlets. Uh, you can get the Shopify POS hardware, which includes a credit card reader, a cash drawer, iPad stand, and a receipt printer. And if you order online, shipping is free. Visit shopify.com slash 5 by 5 and you'll get three months for free. So check them out today. All you need is something to sell. All right, so you're, you're, you've started playing in bands you have uh, decided to pick up guitar because you want to do something truly original. So what happens? I was terrible. You know, um, that was what happened. The, I, I remember, I think it was Ira Glass who, who said it best that um, the first thing that matures in your adult artistic consciousness is um, your critical faculties. And the first thing that your critical faculties do is criticize the work that you're doing. <laughs> and when you're young, <clears throat> your, your work isn't sophisticated or good. It has, you haven't worked long and hard enough at it. Uh, but your ability to perceive that it is bad is very sophisticated. And that was true of me. I started writing songs probably in the immediate aftermath of high school. I wrote a couple of joke songs teasing my sister in high school, but I didn't start really writing, you know, putting guitar chords together and lyrics along with them and trying to to make my own music until that first year after high school and the songs were, I mean, I was proud of them, but they were objectively bad. 
And unlike my peers who had been practicing the guitar for hours and hours at a time from the age of 12 onward, I, w- I was just learning all this stuff um, at the age of 18. And I was, not, I was not learning it through a process of mimicry, right? I wasn't listening to records and figuring out the, the chords and figuring out how songs were made. You know, that's how the Beatles did it. That's how everybody does it. They, you know, you learn to cover your favorite tunes and through that process learn how to make songs. Or at least that's a common way. And that wasn't what I was doing. I was sit, sitting with the guitar and I knew five chords and I would just start moving my hands around the instrument and if I came up with something, I had no way of knowing whether it was the most common riff in the world or a completely new riff. Um, and I would write, write a song and, the, and the, the products were like embarrassing. But, but I was doing it like it, was, it belonged to me. And so <clears throat> for several years after that, I would just write songs and play them for myself when I was, I mean, it was a, it was a solitary activity. I was not, I recognized that the last thing I wanted to do was pull out a guitar at a party and play my songs for my peers. Um, not because I was shy, but because I knew that I would be shouted down. You know, I would play, I would play two songs and I would get beat up basically because they were, because I was, I was hurting people. So I just did it. You know, I spent those, those woodshedding years just making music by myself. And that coincided also with a kind of, I started using a lot of drugs and I started drinking a lot and I didn't have the resources, either financial resources or social resources to put a band together or collaborate with people, I wouldn't have known where to start. You know, I'd be at a party and some guy would say, I'm a drummer. And I'd be like, wow, you're a drummer? Amazing. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm in a lot of bands. And I'd be like, that's amazing. That's so cool. And it would never occur to me to say like, maybe we should play together because I wouldn't even know where to begin. Like, where would you go? Would you go to his house, <laughs> your house. I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't socially, I didn't know how to, to, uh, put those pieces together. And I, I remember for years envying above all else, envying somebody who had a practice space, like a basement in their house or a, a garage. Like that seemed to me to be as much wealth as I could, as I could imagine having. Okay. Just having the space to have a PA and some and to own some amps. Like yeah, I would see bands. They'd be my age and they would have amps and guitars and and drums and it would and you'd go to their you'd go to a party at their practice space. They'd have Christmas lights up and a real PA. <laughs> and it was just like, how did you afford all this stuff and when where does it You've got to be paying rent on this place. Like that's extra money. Like I just did not understand how how young people put it together because I was I was so um, handicapped. I guess it, it, like my imagination 
and and my ability to work and put money together and and keep it all in a pile. So I was 26 years old when I quit doing drugs and drinking. And up until that point, I'd been writing songs every time I could get my hands on a guitar. And like I didn't own a guitar, but every time somebody would leave me alone in their house with a guitar, I would pick it up and immediately start playing it and trying to write songs. But so I was 26 when I quit doing uh, intoxicating substances. Yes. And at that point, I had never played a show, really. I mean, I guess in high school, I, I, we played, a, we played a, an eight-year-old girl's birthday party and, uh, and a, what I guess was a show at the, at the Anchorage Tennis Club. But there wasn't a PA, so I was just singing kind of while some guys played <laughs> ACDC riffs. So I had, I had never played a show, let's just say, at, at age 26. But I did have a, a backlog of songs that I'd written over the years that added up to a couple of dozen tunes. And at that point, I was, you know, 26 years old, pretty washed up guy, like had never really put, put the ability to work a job to any good use. And and at age 26, I saw a lot of my friends, certainly the ones that had pursued advanced degrees, you know, they were already MDs at age 26. And, and, or, and probably had families and kids at that point. Yeah, there were friends that had kids. There were friends that had PhDs. There were friends that were working in government. Um, you know, a good friend of mine from high school was like went on to clerk for Rehnquist <laughs> and he had already clerked for Rehnquist and was on to the next thing. He was a Rhodes Scholar by that point and I was at 26 just like nothing. I had no, I had done, um, I had done a fair amount of adventuring but I had no marketable skills. And so this backlog of songs seemed like an asset Right in in a sure. in a in a situation where I had no other assets, in Seattle, I'd watched people with songs turn those songs into lives for themselves. Okay, I am going to uh, do, do our read. do our second sponsor, okay. and uh, that's Mailchimp.com. Easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. Customize your newsletter sign-up to match your brand, share your sign-up on your website and your Facebook page, and you can collect sign-ups from an iPad or a laptop, and importing existing email lists, no matter where they're from or what format they're in, is a cinch. Um, Personalize what your subscribers see, including the sign-up forms and confirmation emails, so you can make them, make them match your brand and really look like they're part of what you're doing. And there's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With their entrepreneur plan, if you have under 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 to learn more. So wait, what year are we talking about now when you're 26? 1994. Okay. 
context. So grunge had peaked and had become a kind of mainstream universal template of sound. And by 94, most of the energy of the Seattle scene was starting to drain away. Like by the time I quit drinking, Kurt Cobain was already dead. And Soundgarden had a few more records in a mouse and change still, still puttering along. But, you know, Mudhoney was already kind of uh, evolving into whatever, you know, into the next thing. There was not a sense that 94, uh, 94, 95 was the, was the come to Jesus moment here in Seattle where we realized, oh, it's not going to last forever. In fact, it's over. May I interject that Mudhoney, in my opinion, was one of the most underappreciated bands outside of, like, in, in communities not in Seattle, like uh, Mud Honey, just none of my friends knew Mud. Everyone knew Soundgarden. Everyone knew Stone Temple. Everyone knew Nirvana. Nobody knew Mud Honey, and that was probably my favorite out of all those bands. Mud Honey are phenomenal, and what's astonishing about them is they remain phenomenal. Yes, they are. They if you if you get a chance to see Mud Honey tomorrow, do it because you will have the top of your head blown off. They I just most definitely would. They just get better and better and they still they still play, they still um you know, they don't tour so hard, but they they play, they play around Seattle all the time and and they are astonishing. And they were astonishing then. All right. So so I I tried to put a band together. I and I and I did put a band together and I put a band together with one of my high school friends. Um in fact, my high school best friend who had who was one of those guys he came to guitar pretty late too but he had he pursued it avidly and he had a natural affinity for it and by the time he graduated from college he'd become a kind of virtuoso he was a very fast fluid player and he had an unusual sense of of time and he was a good riff maker and so, and he was also a a really together guy. He, you know, he had a master's degree, and was, and he worked very well in a kind of in structured environment. So he had a real job. He had a house. He put a practice space in the basement of his house, and he, you know, he was a a real facilitator for me, of basically providing this providing a kind of incubator like here's a house here are some amps he he had the structure to to like interview musicians like a guy's coming over today to to you know to try out to be our bass player and i was just like whoa wow really cool how did you find him oh you know i put an ad in the newspaper mm-hmm. i was like wow amazing and through that process we put a band together and he and I were writing songs, you know, then, then his riffs and my words and, and chords, we started, we started making music and putting, putting songs together, which we then rehearsed with our group. And then we were ready to play shows and we did play shows. He, he booked shows for us and we were suddenly one of the bands. Like I, at 26 years old, I was in a band and we were one of the bands uh 
and we were one of the struggling bands, you know, a, a band that we, I would, once we had that stuff, once we had made a demo tape, then I had, I had some support behind me and I, I got excited about it. I was a guy that would take his demo tape down to the club and say, hey, you know, here I am. I have a band. Here's my demo. And, you know, and they would throw the demo in the garbage can and I'd be like, back there next week. Hey, come on. <laughs> you know, uh, like doing the whole struggling band routine. And we did that for years. I mean, I, I, we made incremental progress that was just incremental enough that that it felt like it was continue continually growing and so so fruitful right so this year you know the last time we played this club we had 75 people and now we've got 150 people we've doubled the number of people this is how it, this is how it works this is how it goes uh and we had you know we had big dreams and we were 28 i mean we were not teens but because we'd seen so many bands come out of Seattle and go on to fame and fortune, it seemed, it seemed possible. It, it continued to seem possible, even at 28 years old, even as the other guys in my band. I mean, the, our bass player was an aeronautical engineer <laughs> at Boeing working on the 777. You know, he was responsible for like, the, where, where the, the place where the wing joins the body. Wow. And yet he would come and play bass with us. And we, we practiced four nights a week, you know. And, and, and my friend, my high school friend, Kevin, he was working his way up the corporate ladder uh, at a variety of places. And then eventually he ended up working at Nordstrom in the, in the white collar part of it and working his way up. And I was just like, this is incredible. These guys had resources. They had cars. <laughs> But they wanted to play rock and roll. And I still was living in a kind of situation where if I could work, if I, I had a job at a magazine shop, and if I worked 20 hours a week, I just felt like, oh my God, I'm just a slave. <laughs> I'm in this place 20 whole hours a week. I have to be at work at 11 a.m. and I don't get off until 4. It's just it's, it's a little bit unbearable, you know. Uh, but uh, but because I didn't drink, I had, you know, I had enough money to. I was paying rent. I was able to eat in restaurants. You know, I had I had resources, but certainly not you know not the resources that having a job, a real job, provided. Sure. So boy, we played shows. We played so many shows. I have I have copies of the Stranger, the local alternative weekly here, from that period 90 95 96 97 where you open up the the show listings page and for you know for any week any typical week you could find the name of our band in the show listings five times just like played on tuesday night we played on thursday night then we're you know we're doing two shows on friday at two different places like we just played constantly and it was and completely under the radar. The in the editorial section of that newspaper, there was never a mention of us. No show review, no show preview. No, we 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 hadn't released a record, so there were no no reviews. We were just one of the army of bands in any town that is slaving away 
kind of beating our heads against the wall. Always the openers. Well, and and, and gradually we built up a, a fan base so that we were, you know, we were then the headliner on a Wednesday night. <laughs> because which, we had, which we, is close. Yeah, we could bring 200 people uh, at, at our peak, which is no small thing. You know, no, two, it really isn't. Two hundred people is a, is a is a big enough deal, and um, and so in in that period, we started to make friends with other bands, and we became part. And the pro, the problem is that the music we were making was not fashionable. This style of like riffy, all genre, like jumble music was never, ever, ever going to be cool, you know, because, because Kevin's impulse was to always kind of play a little bit in the funk metal. Uh, like Fishbone? Corner. Uh, not, not funk punk metal. Okay. But like Jane's Addiction. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, sort of Jane's Addiction-y, trending. In, if it had to... If it had to pick between Alice in Chains and um, Pavement, it would always pick Alice in Chains. Okay. And, you know, and in, in that, so I was kind of more, because I was, because I didn't have a job and because I was uh, such a shiftless person, I mean, I was, I was more on the street, if you will, and was hearing Pavement and Built to Spill and bands that were producing a kind of, Using the same information that we had, they were producing a very different sound. And it was a sound that was, you know, a lot, uh, musicians use a lot of different terminology. And the terminology that my bandmates at the time really prized were like words like tight and like heavy. And they really you know they wanted us to be a a a a tight and together kind of muscular heavy rock band and i was hearing all this music that was that was um defiantly loose and out of tune even i mean there's nothing tight about pavement and there's nothing really that tight about Built to Spill. There's not, there's, there, there was a lot of stuff coming out that was just... Those, that music is full of information. You know, there are guitars doing all kinds of things and you're trying, you listen to it and you're, you're forced to kind of parse what's happening. The song structures are intriguing. They are kind of willful yeah. In in the sense that it's like may, uh, maybe we'll go back to the chorus, maybe we won't. <laughs> yes. And I was intrigued by it and and compelled by it. And I mean, I loved Jane's Addiction as much as anybody, but I did not love the way that that music evolved into what became funk metal, rap metal, and all of the sort of grungy sure. offshoots. Like that stuff just it it just like got it, the rage got taken out of it and replaced with fake rage. Yeah, it was derivative and essentially. It was, yeah, it was derivative and it was dull, dull-witted. Yeah. The humor went away. And so there entered into my band over the course of time kind of a schism that was um 
I mean, it was best expressed in the name of the band, which was the Bun Family Players. And we named it the Bun Family Players in a misplaced red hot chili peppers, fish bony kind of um, impulse to have a to have a name that communicates nothing, if not uh, like a, 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 in a way a kind of irreverence, maybe a college irreverence. That said, just like, yeah, we're called the Bun Family Players. And maybe, you, maybe you're turned off by that name because it sounds stupid to you. And if, if that's true, ha, 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 fuck you. Uh, and as time went on, nobody in the band liked the name. But half of my songwriting partnership wanted to change our name to something like uh, Wrench or, <laughs> you know... Uh, Carburetor, or I don't, I don't know, some one-word name that that was kind of tough sounding. I, I've been through the band naming process several times, and oh, it's the worst. It is. Eventually, my high school band, we took the authors of our chemistry textbook, and we became Moonman Auto. Moonman Auto. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And, <laughs> and you know, Moonman Auto. What does that mean? It means nothing. It and doesn't. there were. There were a lot of bands at that time, a lot of cool bands that were naming themselves after uh, like their neighborhood, right? Lincoln Park is just a misspelling of right. Lincoln the, Park. The, Lincoln yeah. Park, right. And uh, <laughs> but but I think the guys in my band wanted to be in tool or in helmet or something that had like a like a pretty tough name. And and it, and really when you think about it, pavement is one of those names. It's just that we associate pavement with a totally different style of music. Right. Uh, I wanted a clever name. I thought Built to Spill was a great band name. And so within the Bun family players, we started to... We, we had built a pretty good little scene for ourselves. We had girls that liked us. We, were, we had j- jackets with our band name on them. We, there were a couple of cafes that I went to all the time where... All the people that worked at the cafe were fans of the band. So whenever we would play, like all the patrons of this place and all the staff would all be at our show. And the next day I'd go in for my tofu scramble and feel like a real hero, you know, feel like a member of a music scene. And it was all so small, right? There was no, I had, I didn't even have a concept of putting out a record. And going national, or even get, or even owning a van and driving to Portland, you know, it was like Seattle centric, and we we sold cassette tapes at our shows, and we had a dedicated fan base that knew all the words to our songs, and in a way, it was kind of a utopian moment, I guess, circa ninety eight, and. Right about that time, one of the bands that we played with a lot, uh, I'm sorry, we didn't play with them a lot. We went to see them a lot. They were one of the guys, one of the other bands that were kind of doing a similar thing to us. We only played with them twice. But both times, it really stuck in our mind, and we became like band friends. And that band was Harvey Danger. And until that until that song, Flagpole Sitta, went onto the music charts, Harvey Danger was in the exact same boat as the Bun Family Players. Maybe they could attract 150 people to their shows, 
I mean, we played with them once and there were 150 people total for both of us because we were opening for the band Hater and Hater had, you know, Hater had 25 people just in their entourage. I mean, the, you know, we, it was a, it was a half empty club and these were, and we were, you know, we were big members of whatever little weird scene we had. But then Harvey Danger suddenly had a, had a single on the charts and it blew everybody's mind. It felt like there was no way that that could happen again. And certainly no way it would happen to a band that we knew. And, and, and especially strange that it would happen to a band as unlikely as Harvey Danger were. Sure. Um, and so that, that experience sort of changed the dynamic of the scene. The, this, this kind of utopia of like, well, we're, we're doing it. We're a band that's making it. We've got, you know, we, we made $250 at our show last night. That's, that's not chicken feed, you know? And then all of a sudden, Harvey Danger were, had, had the number one song. Flagpole said it just shot up the charts. Wow. And, uh, and it was cool, but it was also like, oh, wait a minute, what are we doing? Like, we don't, it hasn't even really occurred to us to make a record, to go into a studio <laughs> and make a record. How would, and that's a whole new set of skills that you have to learn. Yeah. Well, I, I, I regret having to do this, but we have to, we have to jump to another sponsor. No, 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 go right ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm babbling. I hope that you're going to cut 95% of this out. I, I may have to cut a little for time since we're already over our hour. But, oh, is uh, it an hour-long program? Generally. <laughs> I, I, I always let Merlin go a little bit over. So I figured <laughs> I, I could afford you the same respect. But no, it's been a fascinating story. Um, I think we're going to end up skipping the uh, what I call the top three picks, what you and I agreed would be called the three points of conversation because you have an aversion to top blank anything. Uh-huh. Um, so we may we may uh, pass on that this week unless you feel strongly about anything. But either way, I'm going to do our third sponsor read, okay. and we can go wherever it needs to after that. Have you ever thought about what it's like to be someone who lives in Metropolis? I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Basically, no matter what happens to you, you step in front of a car, fall out of a high window, get shot at by some space dude, the big guy comes and saves the day. And I guess you must sort of get used to that. It takes the worry away. It basically makes accidents boring. Now that you want, now you, now that you want to get hit by a train, of course not. Uh, not that you want to get hit by a train, of course not. But hey, it happens. And in Metropolis, no big whoop. Super Duper is like that. You can, you, uh, it's a backup application for Mac, and you just install it and you set it up, and it creates a bootable backup copy of your entire hard drive. Uh, you can set the backup schedule up however you want daily, weekly, anything. Uh, and when disaster strikes, Super Duper's just there and it saves the day. Just start up the drive. Uh, hold down Option key when you're starting your Mac and pick your, your, your Super Duper drive instead of your regular drive. And things are set back to the latest backup. And then buy a new drive when you get a chance, install it, and then have Super Duper copy the data back to your hard drive. And there's no panicking, no heart attacks, no stress. It's just that simple. Uh, so it's a one-time fee of twenty-seven ninety-five, and the full support of Super Duper is yours. No subscriptions, nothing like that. Uh, it's the most boring software you'll ever love. Uh, go check it out and learn more at shirt-pocket.com slash super duper. Super duper. It's very cool. So is, is, anything you want to uh, to touch on, John? 
what do you mean? Well, we're we're at time right now, right? But I I I feel oh we we should do a to be continued on this. <laughs> well, is that I mean that is a pretty deep uh, dive into the the whole like origin story of uh, of my rock career, but I, I'm not sure how appealing that is uh, I, to people personally. I found it fascinating because oh, good. A, a lot of your life syncs up with my life. Mm. Ten years off, like mm. I'm, I'm ten years behind you, in that I'm, I'm younger, and so my first band was starting up, the time that you were getting clean, mm-hmm. and I did not get clean. The me getting clean was effectively the end of my music endeavors. I, and that happens to so many people. I believe that, that. Yeah, that their rock and roll years coincide with their drug and alcohol years. Well, and it seems like the drug and alcohol for some of us, especially introverts, which is very common in the music industry, it's what it's what facilitates right. us getting on stage and us going on tour and us living for months at a time in close proximity to other people. Yes. For an introvert, that is hell. Yes. And drugs and alcohol are about the only way to survive that for some of us. Absolutely. And once you take that away, you suddenly have no interest in getting in a van with no. three or four other people. You yeah. realize how bad other people smell? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, and, <laughs> and I have, you know, I've held a lot of dudes' hands as they try to kick drugs and continue to be performing artists and it has a really mixed success rate i i personally feel like that you know the alcohol and the drugs do not help ultimately um and you just need to redraw those pathways and figure out a way to get up on stage and i mean you know basically like I pretend I'm drunk all the time. I'm basically <laughs> always a little drunk because I am disinhibited. You know, like the, whatever that filter is that we were talking about at the beginning of the program, that people allow, uh, people have a filter that they're able to bring down that kind of numb out their ability to go deep and get intense. Because I, because I lack that filter, it, it, it it causes me to have uh, uh, to be in a constant state of disin uh, disinhibitedness, and that is equal to kind of the experience of having three to five drinks, right? right? Like if if I'm in a if I'm in a situation and it seems to me suddenly that this situation calls for me to get up on the table and take my shirt off, <laughs> um, then that's then. You know, who am I to argue with that voice, right? And that, that gets me in trouble a lot, but it also is a, is a sort of uh, imitation drunkenness. And I feel like everybody can pretend to be drunk uh, if, they need, if, if that's what they need. You know, it's, sure. a lot, it's a lot better to pretend to be drunk and get up on stage than it is to have to get drunk to be up on stage. Well, and it becomes part of that, uh, that cloak, that performance that you're able to do. Right. Yeah, but the uh, but the other difference or the other thing that was that uh, worked in my favor was that I was actively 
opposed to the idea that at 28 years old, I needed to get serious. And that was a thing that I heard over and over and over again. People saying like, well, you know what, man? It's time to get serious. Like I've been playing in bands since I was 15 years old and it it just never worked out and we never made it. And so I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to be a scumbag the rest of my life. And so it's time to get serious. My old lady says it's time to get serious. (laughs) And I watched a lot of people at 28 and 30 years old sort of hang up their spurs and go get jobs at Amazon and Microsoft and uh, Nintendo or whatever the, you know, whatever the hip, hip jobs here at the time were. And then they're sitting at a desk and they're computer jockeying and they're making good money and, uh, and their old lady is happy with them, I guess, briefly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and this was true of a lot of the, the gals that were playing rock and roll, too, where yeah. they're just like, you know, I want to have a family one day. I want to be I want to have a business of my own. And, you know, they hang up their spurs and they go back to college or they, you know, they start a consulting business or whatever it is. Everybody got serious. And at 28 years old, there, if there was one thing that was true about me, it was that I knew I, it, I was incapable of getting serious in that way. Like I had tried it dozens of times. My dad used to say to me, like, go to law school. And it just wasn't going to happen. And so I had to just keep doubling down on pursuing an alternate course. And what I've seen is that at about, at, at about 36 to 38 years old, 10 years later, a lot of those people started coming back around. Right. They started coming, coming Kim, to shows. Kim Deal. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'll, I've never met her, but I would love it. I would love to. Big fan, super fan. Let me, let me ask you another one real quick. Um, yeah. Do you follow Nico Case? I, you know, I've met Nico a few times. I like her very much. I had to stop following her on Twitter because she uses Twitter in a different way. Well, I just I, meant I just meant her career, not so much like follow her oh, daily oh. life. Oh yeah, no, I because she started her. in Alaska too, right? And uh, she ended Tacoma. up Tacoma. I swear she was in. Um, hold on. She, she was in Vancouver. Vancouver, yeah. That's where she, that's where, like, when she talks about her affinity for um, uh, Iron Maiden, uh-huh. like, that started around the same, same time you were talking about Iron Maiden. And yeah, it was in Vancouver. Yeah. I mean, the Canada, thing about Nico, yeah. the difference uh, with Nico is that Nico is one of those people who truly has a gifted voice like a gift <laughs> from god kind of voice it right it's pretty amazing yeah so nico case you could take her and you could shoot her out of a cannon you could put her in any music scene at any time in the last 50 years and that voice would cut through and it would win out right yeah. and it it doesn't hurt that she is also whip smart and also like sarcastic and can hang and you know like she's got a multitude of personality traits that also make her a very cool a dude. Yeah. But that voice is like a 
is a talent that you cannot. The, uh, her voice is a talent that I do not have a corresponding equivalent to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my uh, whatever is unique about my voice, whatever is unique about my songwriting, whatever is unique about my talent, there isn't a there isn't just like a kind of <laughs> flaming sword element. And when you hear Nico's voice, it just it cuts through the clutter. You recognize it instantly. You're just like, holy shit, is that Nico Case? And those instances where it isn't, you're like, that person is totally fake, is aping Nico Case. <laughs> right on. So, All right. Uh, um, well, my, uh, my sister, my, my actual sister is visiting from out of town. She's going to be here in three minutes. Oh, okay. Well, then that seems Which like makes a good me feel. I feel horrible. I feel like well, we should have. I should have planned like three hours and then edited it down. We 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 rambled. You you are more than welcome to say that this is part one of two episodes. I would appreciate that. I would love to have you back. Yeah, and I'll just come on and finish the story at another time, and you can edit this however you see to to make it uh, make it flow, and then we'll then then I'll I'll finish up with another hour and a half of the time in my career that started when I joined Harvey Danger. Beautiful. I would love that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's tell people they can find you at uh, thelongwinters.com and soon to materialize uh, in progress, johnroderick.com. Right. And uh, on Twitter, you are John Roderick. Correct. And on Instagram, I'm John Roderick. You're, so everywhere? Every, everywhere you go, I am John Roderick. And that seems like i should be knowable yeah i think it's yeah. a good plan um and then your podcast with merlin called roderick on the line is at merlinman.com slash roderick and uh and i do highly recommend that one and i am at brettterpshire.com and in much the same way i am tt scoff everywhere um, so yeah, I think it's good. It's, it's almost like personal branding. It wasn't necessarily, that wasn't my intention. I'm, I don't think it was probably yours, but you went with what was always available. And John Roderick was probably frequently available. Yeah, that's right. I'm also John Roderick at gmail.com. Um, if you want to email me, but yeah, I, I, it is an antidote to internet anonymity to just have your name be your calling card. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here this week. And we will plan a part two. Thank you. It was a really enjoyable. All right. And everyone, uh, this is Systematic 106. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. Bye.